Hello, I'm Fred Stella, President of the Interfaith Dialogue Association. Welcome to another edition of Common Threads. So, several months ago, maybe close to a year, I made a promise to you. After multiple episodes dealing with politics and religion, given our current situation, I said that we'd take a break. And really, I've been good. You have no idea how many articles and books I've come across as of late that so tempted me to contact the author and arrange a show with them. But I held firm to my promise, and in the ensuing weeks and months, I think we've provided you a a nice array of interesting topics outside the realm of the political. But you know, not long ago, I came across an old magazine from 2007. It's called First Things. Way back around that time, we hosted the magazine's founder, Father John Newhouse, here on Common Threads. Turns out I had never read that particular issue that got stashed away somewhere. I don't know. I don't know about you, but I love reading periodicals from the not-so-distant past and seeing where we were as a culture and a country. In this issue, I saw a review for a book entitled Religious Freedom and the Constitution. Naturally, this grabs me. I was so impressed with what I read about the book, even though I did not read the book itself, that I was inspired to reach out to its co-author, Professor Lawrence Sager. So often, authors are only interested in being interviewed about their work when they are in the process of promoting it shortly after release. But I have to say, I'm very impressed with how willing Professor Sager was to join us today. So while I am breaking my fast of politics and religion, I suspect you won't be disappointed A little bit about our guest. Lawrence Sager is one of the nation's preeminent constitutional theorists and scholars. He currently teaches at the University of Texas. His prior posts include New York University, where he co-founded the program in law, philosophy, and social theory. He's also taught at Harvard, Princeton, Boston University, UCLA, and the University of Michigan. Professor Sager is the author or co-author of dozens of articles many now classics in the canon of legal scholarship. He's the author of two books, Justice in Plain Clothes, A Theory of American Constitutional Practice, and the book that I referenced just a few moments ago, Religious Freedom and the Constitution, which he co-authored with Christopher Eisberger. So we welcome to Common Threads, Professor Lawrence Sager. Hello, sir. Hi there. Listen, uh, again, thank you so much for uh, joining us. As I just mentioned, uh, it's, it's often challenging to get people to talk about things that, uh, you know, aren't, aren't, their current, uh, aren't their current works. But you did, and uh, we appreciate that, as I say. So my first... I'm, happy to be, I'm happy to be here. Um, I'm a great deal more interested in talking about the ideas of the book than in selling it. <laughs> oh. <laughs> well, good. That's probably why you're in the business you are. Right. Uh, uh, so tell me, let's go back to the early part of this century. What inspired you to write the book? Was, was anything actually going on uh, in the country that said, now we've, we've got we've to put a, a little light on this? Actually, um, to a surprising extent, no. Um, the interesting thing is, is Chris uh, 
who was then a colleague of mine at NYU. He's now the president of Princeton. And um, when we wrote this book, he was provost there, and I was at NYU and then the University of Texas. We became interested in the problem of religious liberty in the Constitution as a kind of important constitutional puzzle, uh, but not an especially hot-button issue politically. Uh, And uh, we wrote against the backdrop of a constitutional puzzle that actually divided the court, but not along traditional political lines. And while not obscure, was not at the center of constitutional attention. Since then, as you know, the world has turned, <laughs> and this this has become a highly politicized constitutional issue, and one uh, about which the the court has opined at controversial length, and is is very much in the crosshairs of modern constitutional controversy. So, if you were to write this uh, the same book again today there would be emphasis on on certain cases that have come up over the past uh, couple of years? There would be emphasis on certain cases, or they would certainly arrest our attention. But interestingly enough, I think, um, and fortunately, um, I think that in many ways, what we wrote uh, and worried about anticipated um, many of the modern developments so I don't think we'd find ourselves recanting, but just focusing more sharply on the realization of issues that were latent at the time we wrote. So so define the, the concept that uh, permeates the book, to my understanding, uh, equal liberty. The idea of equal liberty is this, that um, uh, religious liberty... Um, consists of a variety of elements in our constitutional jurisprudence, uh, elements that are wide, that are very fully reflected in freedom of speech, the, you know, the right of people to congregate and talk to one another and proselytize, are widely reflected in um, certain specific liberties, like such as the right of parents to make decisions on behalf of their children and their education, uh, and consists of a set of rights specifically concerned with religion, but, um, but concerned in a way that are about the equal distribution of liberty, not a special liberty that goes to the religiously committed. So we see the attractive and robust features of the constitu- of constitutional law in the United States about assuring that uh, members of religious faiths and minority faiths in particular are treated fairly, uh, not that they are privileged with some sort of get-out-of-jail-free card. And is there, uh, are there movements or were there movements to make religion special? Yes, um, there, there were, uh, there were, um, in a curious way, and now they are again. Um, the the past look is interesting. Um, in 1963, uh, in a decision by Justice Brennan, Sherbert v. Verner, which involved 
um, a Saturday Sabbath observer who was denied unemployment insurance because um, she couldn't work on Saturdays. Um, Justice Brennan was confronting a case in Sherbert, as was the court, that could easily have been resolved in terms of equal liberty, namely Sunday observers in the state in question were fully taken care of by unemployment insurance, but not Saturday observers. And Justice Brennan could have written a powerful and simple opinion, but instead he said any time government significantly burdens someone's exercise of their religious faith, they are behaving unconstitutionally unless their regulation is justified by a very weighty interest, the so-called compelling state interest. And that seemed to announce a very special privilege of the religiously committed, um, a privilege to do whatever their religion dictated or avoid doing whatever their religion prohibited, uh, notwithstanding what the law said, uh, unless the government had a very powerful reason for interfering with their religious projects. And that notion is one of tremendous privilege, a very special autonomy right that only the religiously committed have. Interestingly enough, between 1963 and 1990, although that was nominally the rule in, uh, in Supreme Court jurisprudence, the court never lived up to that. It couldn't really face the implications of that special privilege. And there were only two areas in which this privilege worked. One was three other unemployment insurance cases. And the second was a case called Wisconsin v. Yoder, which is a case in which the Amish were given um, the right to take their children out of high school two years earlier than other people uh, in Wisconsin. A case that could have been uh, dealt with under the special right of parents over their children's education. And then in 1990, in the Smith case, which was the uh, Indian peyote case in Oregon, the Supreme Court said, no, that never really was the rule. Justice Scalia wrote an opinion in which he said, I know that was the language in Sherbert, but if you look at what we've done, that wasn't our rule. Um, and so when, uh, at the time Chris and my book was published, um, there was no special privilege. The court had backed away from that idea. So are, but are you now saying... we're in a, but now we're in a period where the court is returning with some energy to the idea of a special privilege for the religiously committed. So are you saying, for instance, the, the, uh, person who wanted Saturday off because that was Sabbath to, it was, a, it was a woman. It was a woman. Okay, so so it was, it, sure. Okay, so it was a a, a woman who uh, uh, could not find employment because apparently all of the options included working on Saturday, and she said, "I'm not going to work Saturday; hence, I should receive unemployment insurance." Uh, right. So, it should be the state should treat that as good cause for my rejecting the job. So, so if I'm an atheist. And for whatever reason, don't want to work on Wednesday. Not just not just because it's a, a, a 
I'm being frivolous, but for some reason, Wednesday is important to me not to work. You're saying that uh, they would treat me differently, or they would have treated me differently back then than they would the woman who has uh, uh, who celebrates or observes Sabbath on Saturday, and, and that makes it special. Am, am I reading that right? Right. That's the, the the constitutional rule that the court announced was one that only benefited the religious worker or unemployment claimant, not the non-religious. And, you know, we could imagine, you know, you could, with a little bit of very plausible fiction, we could construct a Saturday uh, non-religious observer. I've thought about this a little bit. I mean, suppose in the wake of um, 9-11, people had, people who, for non-religious purposes, had begun to, choose Saturdays as a day of remembrance for the first responders in the nine, uh, in, in 9-11 and said, um, look, on Saturdays, we won't do ordinary work. We won't do ordinary play. We'll only work on behalf of others. We'll call this Saturday sacrifice. And every Saturday, we will devote ourselves to the interests of the needy uh, in the name of the first responders in 9-11. Uh, and um, we don't do this for religious purposes. We do this because we want to honor those people uh, for our own moral and social remembrance purposes. That, a Saturday sacrificer, you know, wouldn't get the same constitutional treatment as the Sabbath observer under the rule that was announced uh, in 1963. The state could give them both um, uh, uh, unemployment insurance benefits, but the Constitution on this view only required the protection of the Sabbath observer. If you're just joining us, you're listening to Common Threads on WGVU. I'm Fred Stella, and my guest today is Professor Lawrence Sager. Uh, He is the co-author of Religious Freedom and the Constitution, co-authored with Christopher Eisberger. Uh, So you say that now there is more of a movement in the courts to make religion special, not just equal. Uh, Give us a couple of of, uh, examples. Well, the, 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 the principal examples flow from, um, flow from legislation, which was enthusiastically adopted by Congress uh, in 1990 and became law in 1993, the Religious Freedom Restoration Act. And the Religious Freedom Restoration Act essentially said, we're going to create statutory rights of the kind that Sherbert B. Verner gave in the name of the Constitution. And um, the most prominent application of the Religious Freedom Restoration Act is the Hobby Lobby case, with which I'm sure you and many of your listeners are familiar, which is the case in which a um, a uh, for-profit, closely held corporation, Hobby Lobby's uh, owners were and the corporation were held to have a statutory right not to um, not to provide uh, 
insurance benefits for their employees' uh, contraception. And that was done in the name of a statutorily guaranteed religious freedom, a claim that only was available to not to to individuals or closely held corporations that were religious. So that's, that's a revival of this notion of a special right of the um, religiously committed. And now we're seeing that simmering in the controversy between um, uh, the rights of LGBT uh, same sex marriage partners and the rights of religious um, marriage service providers who are increasingly claiming that they are entitled to um, choose not to provide wedding services to same-sex marriages on religious grounds. And that claim in that form is a special claim of religious privilege. Let's... uh... Let's talk about that for a minute. I understand the court did rule on that in favor of uh, it was a baker. Right? They ruled. They ruled in favor of a baker whose claim was the claim I announced, but they didn't rule on the general grounds that a religiously committed baker can refuse to provide a cake to same-sex marriage celebrants. They. That question was not reached, and instead they ruled on specific um, missteps that the state of Colorado had made in applying its public accommodation laws, missteps that Colorado or any other state could avoid in the future. So they they were concerned about um, what the court took to be a hostility to religion by the some Colorado commissioners, uh, and they were concerned about specific reasoning that the commission had used in distinguishing the baker uh, in that case from a prior from another case, which I'm happy to talk about. But neither of those reached the basic question of did the baker have a constitutional right to disobey the non-discrimination law of the state of Colorado. Um, These were, if you will, sort of specific idiosyncratic facts, which will will all be better off if states avoid making those same missteps. But the major question was left on the table. So if, let's say, uh, the state of Michigan... Uh, is uh, faced with a very similar dilemma. And the governor calls me and says, Fred, help us out here. And I said, I know a guy. I know a guy who might be able to help you, governor. His name is Larry Sager uh, at the uh, University of Texas. Well, give me his number. So I give her the number. And she says, uh, uh, Larry, we'll, we'll make you an offer you can't refuse. We'll, we'll pay you an astoundingly a large amount of money if you will help us not make the same missteps that Colorado did. Um, not, not to blow this scenario so you never get hired by the governor of the state of Michigan, but, <laughs> but c- could, you, could you give some uh, Monday morning quarterback advice to that situation? Well, I think the, the, the main advice would be um, quite, 
quite idiosyncratic or quite specific, namely the, that that it is, uh, in my view, it is uh, the question that the court left unanswered um, should be answered as follows: a, a fairly applied uh, anti-discrimination law on behalf of members of the LGBT uh, community should oblige all public accommodations not to discriminate against same-sex marriage celebrants um, and should oblige marriage service providers to provide services for same-sex marriages. In the course of that, however, the state should be very careful to avoid the reality or the appearance of being hostile to religion, because this is not a question of being hostile to religion. It's a question of uh, fairly applying a very important anti-discrimination law. The analogy which comes to mind, of course, is race. Uh, in the wake of Brown versus Board of Education and in the wake of the Federal Public Accommodations uh, Act, um, some number of institutions and individuals claimed quite possibly sincerely that their desire to segregate or their commitment to segregation uh, in their restaurant or in their university with regard to dating policy and or whatever, that these that these impulses to segregate came from their sincerely held religious beliefs. And the court said, those beliefs may be perfectly fine and you are entitled to them, but you're not entitled to to go into the public marketplace uh, and discriminate. And I think that's what Michigan should do. It should solidly apply its anti-discrimination law if it has a robust public accommodations act that applies to LGBTQ individuals. I'm not sure about Michigan's public accommodations law in this regard, but it should be very careful to avoid, as I say, either the reality or the appearance of hostility to religion. Religious providers stand on the same footing as everyone else, uh, and their beliefs are entitled to uh, to exist, to be published, to be respected, but they're not entitled. They're not entitled to follow those beliefs if they are if they are providing public accommodations. Is there a difference between uh, a gay couple going into a baker and saying, "We want a cake, and uh, we want uh, two men in tuxedos at the at the top, or we want uh, best wishes, uh, you know, Jim and Chuck, or something like that." And a neo-Nazi going in and saying, we're having a party at my house for a birthday, and we want a, a cake with a swastika on it. Uh, now, could the, the baker say to both people, I will sell you a cake, but it is my right not to fulfill your request because that, uh, that uh, delves into my artistic freedom? Well, that, that's that's a very interesting question, which I, I'm not going to evade, but I'm going to answer. But I want to note that in an important way, we are asking a different question now, because now we are asking 
not about the special liberty of a religious individual not to comply with an anti-discrimination law. Now we are asking about the liberty of um, any public accommodations provider, let's say any baker, uh, not to engage in in a speech act which they uh, which they deplore. Right. So yes. we're talking about free speech and compelled speech at this point. And as you suggested, this is a claim that would apply to a religious baker or a non-religious baker. Um, Hence, equal on, liberty, not special. Right, not special. And my, my view about that question is as follows. Um, I think that uh, I would be inclined to draw a line at the following place, uh, and we could talk about that. I would be inclined to think that um, that a um, a baker can be obliged to provide a cake to a same-sex marriage, but it's very possible that if that includes the writing on the cake, specific, you know, such as um, suppose the the cake was going to bear um, the, the congratulations, Bob and Jim, uh, the union of two souls is sacred and beautiful. And the baker says, I can't be obliged to, in effect, you know, publish that statement on my cake. That's an interesting question. And maybe the baker is entitled not to publish that statement. But I don't think he's entitled to withhold the cake. Right, which is which is when I started this, I, I, I thought of that, that the cake the cake's gotta get sold. Uh, uh, Larry, we are out of uh, out of time for this uh, particular episode of Common Threads, but there's so much more to discuss. I hope that you can join us again next week. I'd be delighted to. I'm sorry that I that I talk so long. <laughs> no, no, your answers are brilliant. I, it's an honor to have you. So we will continue this uh, next week. You've been listening to Common Threads here on WGVU. I'm Fred Stella, and with me today is Professor Lawrence Sager, uh, one of the nation's preeminent constitutional theorists and scholars from the University of Texas. Please join us again next week here on WGVU.